Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 182, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Educators have become very popular on TikTok. We'll discuss whether or not that's a good thing. And a Swiss study tells us how gifted students can improve the outcomes of their classmates, regardless of their ability levels. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, inquiry-based learning. What is it, and where do you start? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic today. How's your book coming? Didn't you tell us you were working on something that you were writing? Yes, I am so excited about Women Who Lead in Education. Um, It is an anthology that is in pre-order right now. And we're just really excited about the nine leaders that include myself sharing our leadership journeys and then areas of expertise. And in my particular chapter, I talk specifically about building teacher capacity and leadership in turnaround schools. And so we actually... um, participated in an interview this morning on the Dr. Sharon show. Oh, cool. Um, and it was just really exciting to to get an opportunity to speak with all of those educators that I am sharing this anthology with and to make some new connections. And they're doing some amazing things in their schools. And I'm just really loving being able to share it um, with anybody looking to um, develop their leadership, to understand their, the leadership that they work with, um, and just wanting to do better and more for our students. I mean, as you kind of started writing, has that been, I mean, you're writing about what you know about, but has it been harder than you expected or been pretty easy? I think it was hard in the beginning because this was new for me. And I, I while I understood the expectation, I was a little bit intimidated. This was, you know, out of water for me. But um I just read a few other things that I usually tap into when I want to be inspired um, and listen to a really good sermon by my pastor, believe it or not. And I just started thinking, what are the most important things about my journey that could help someone? And that was the angle that I stuck with. And when I moved from talking about my journey and some very honest experiences, um, then I just started talking about what's been most effective for me in the turnaround situations that I've been in. And it's talking about building school leadership and turnaround situations I'm referring to is I have just been incredibly blessed to be placed um, in failing, struggling schools that are high poverty, high minority. And there is research out there to support that high poverty, high minority schools can excel. And so it's still a lot of minds that need to be changed and a lot of communities that need, you know, a, a different thought process but really just trying to motivate and corral teachers to give these children what they deserve 
um, despite the hindrances that they, you know, experience on a day-to-day basis. That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, you know, as I always try to build these shows on a weekly basis, we're always kind of looking at what news is out there. And we want to keep people up to date with maybe some stories and education that they haven't seen. But one thing that's kind of been driving me nuts is it's, it seems like all there is to talk about is COVID, COVID, COVID for the past uh, 10, 11 months. And, and rightfully so. I mean, it's extremely important. But um, today, I was actually able to find a couple stories that really have nothing to do with COVID. And I'm excited about that to take a break. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So Get um, back to our olden days, right? Right. Exactly. And so today, um, we're going to start in uh, Switzerland because they had an um, interesting study that um, somebody wrote about. And it was they, they were studying whether or not gifted students improve the outcomes of their classmates, regardless of their classmates' ability level. So in other words, mixing gifted students with what I would say either high achievers and non-gifted students. Um, and, and so what they did was they looked at data from 31 thousand plus students and which is over 1500 classes from 80 different schools and they looked at data ranging from 2008 to 2017 um and this was the university of switzerland doing this and Mm -hmm. they they use the student level level data because they felt like the giftedness is assessed and determined by school psychology services and it's more independent because you could always say like what does gifted mean you know like who is it the parents you know kind of pushing those kids and saying my child is gifted or is this you know fair and and i think they're arguing that this this at least was done at an independent level Uh, they got four findings and their first one was they found that daily exposure to gifted peers over two school years has a consistent positive statistical significant effect on non-gifted students' academic achievement with the greatest impact on non-gifted students who are male or high achieving. Do you have any thoughts there? I do. One thing we have to recognize is that children who are identified as gifted have a different cognitive process. Um, They're not always your highest achievers, even when they're identified Mm -hmm. as gifted. True. But they think differently. They process information differently. and, And oftentimes their imagination It's just grand. And so being able to communicate with a peer, um, you're exposing them to so many different ideas and thought processes that, you know, not being led by an adult, not being held accountable for an assignment, but just casual conversation um, between different types of students like that. I think it's a huge plus. And I think that data um, that they've identified is valid. This next one is, I can't explain the why, but they say that male students benefit from the presence of gifted peers in all subjects, regardless of their gender, whereas female students seem to benefit primarily from the presence of female gifted students. Does that make any sense to you? I can't really wrap my mind around that. It probably has to do with the social factor. I would love to you find out, um, delve into that research to see if they identified any age groups. Um, but for girls, it could be the the social factor and just navigating, you know, quicker to friends, so to speak, and having those conversations. Whereas with with the boys, what is you know capturing their attention? What topics are the different students bringing up? How are, what do they sound like when they're sharing that triggers their interest, regardless of you know it being a boy or a girl? Um, the third finding is. I think not a huge surprise. It's the fact that these benefits that we've been talking about don't occur if the gifted student has emotional or behavioral disorders. So in those cases, yeah, because it's a quick turnoff um, and it'll cause other students to close up and, and, 
you know, unfortunately, um, probably isolate that student. And a lot of times when our gifted students have emotional, um, you know, issues, if we don't handle them, and what I mean by handle, if you don't support them in the right way, if you don't identify their strengths and play on those and only focus on their emotional um, state, then it's really a travesty for those students. Sometimes you can be smarter than your own good. You ever hear your your mom or somebody say that? Yes. Um, You just don't know what to do with all of that great knowledge and, and, and talent that you, that you have. And then you're at an, you know, an, an immature age, so to speak. And so I just, you know, one, that's one of the things that I always try to talk to my teachers about when they find that there's a child that's interrupting their classroom or just not a good fit for that classroom setting. I have to help them see beyond um, that and try to tap into um, what will keep that child's attention and what will cause them to be a bit more engaged because they have so much to offer and so much potential um, and just such a great opportunity to make an impact on the entire classroom, yet they might be dealing with some other things. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I mean, as we all know that you have in society some criminals who are mm-hmm. extremely bright people and gifted people, you know, um, and they the, had horrible school experiences, right? The Unabomber, I think went through Harvard, you know, it was, it's just yeah. like, you know, you, you, they're, they are out there. Not to say that that's every, uh, gift no, but it makes you wonder what his experiences were like. And was right. he isolated? Was he, you know, did anybody pay any attention to him? Was he picked on? Did he feel alone? You know, just a lot of the characteristics of those who, um, Come unglued. Right. The fourth finding is the effects of prolonged exposure to gifted peers extended beyond secondary school, they said, increasing non-gifted oh. students' likelihood of pursuing Switzerland's academic track, which is much like a, a U.S. bachelor's program, um, as opposed to opting for a vocational track or no track at all. So again- Now that's really deep. Mm-hmm. I, I I wonder how many they study to identify that information, that it really significantly changed their their future- yeah. And I mean, when you ask how many they studied, they looked at 31,000 students. I mean, they're looking at the data wow. for 31,000 students. Um, so the the author who wrote this, his takeaway was this suggests like, all right, how do we apply this to the U.S.? And he's saying it suggests that U.S. school leaders should be more active in identifying giftedness and then mm-hmm. more deliberate about how they compose the classrooms where these students are mixed with peers of varying mm-hmm. ability levels. I mean, would you agree? Do you do we do we put a lot of thought? Into I don't that know right if now? I could agree or disagree until I look at their funding, right. <laughs> their resources, and um, just how they prioritize needs within their schools. Because I suspect um, that we will look very different. Right. Well, um, changing gears, there's uh, an interesting story that popped up in Ed Surge uh, this week, and it just caught my attention because I've, I, my wife's on TikTok. Are you on TikTok? I'm not. I am not. And I just won't convert. I know. And, <laughs> and I know I should be. That's like the place to be right now. But I'm kind of like to the point where I'm like, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. I'm kind of over I'm a lot of out. social media right now. It's just not very positive. Right. However, for whatever reason, teachers are very popular in the world of TikTok. I mean, you just like look up the hashtag in TikTok of teachers of TikTok. Um, there are more than 6 billion views there. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and so you kind Six of- 6 billion? Right, and, and you kind of have two different categories of teachers that are taking off in that world from what I read. Mm-hmm. And, and one category is what I would call like, you know, the teacher who is the great teacher and showing ways they're a great teacher. You know, here's what mm-hmm. I'm doing to do my mm-hmm. virtual classroom and stuff. But then on the other side, you have teachers getting very popular on TikTok because they're they're given the, the raw look at being a teacher. They're telling it, 
I guess you can say like it is or, or kind of the behind the scenes, the the dirty stuff going on. And they're funny at the same time. They're kind of like, you know, maybe should have been comedians at the same time. And so mm-hmm. their videos do really well. Does that make you cringe as a an administrator? Like, are you worried about what's going out there? Listen, I, I just shared with you a few minutes ago that I just wasn't going to convert and take on another piece of social media. And I'm probably that administrator they're, they're banking on not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, um, you know, no matter what platform you use or, or how you communicate with the world, you we, we have to try and remind teachers that you are ambassadors to your school district. You are public servants. And so representation does matter. And sharing your strategies or things that are working well for you with virtual learning, I think it's motivating especially if you struggle to get where you are and now something is working or the light bulb came on or your students engagement increased, then yeah, you need to share it out there because we're all, you know, flying this plane and building it at the same time. On the flip side of that, whether it's TikTok or any other social media, because we've seen this thing evolve over time, um, school districts more so than not have social media policies in place. And you have to remind teachers, not only during in-service, but throughout the school year about um, appropriate and inappropriate posts on social media. And I know their take is, well, it's mine. It's it's my personal. But at the end of the day, we are ambassadors for the school district. Mm-hmm. We are public servants, so to speak. And our image does matter because we are making an impact on youth. And so <laughs> I have seen some videos, even though I am not a user of TikTok. Right. They kind of cross over into other media. Well, I have yeah. co- colleagues that actually send them to me because they're, or they're not even educators sometimes, and they send them and it tickles them. And then I'll watch it and think, oh yeah, that was really funny. I wonder if she has a job tomorrow. <laughs> right. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. I see, I see kind of um, educators doing the take, which maybe is harmless, where they almost kind of like are making fun of those parents that ask the like maybe like a helicopter parent or something like that they're mm-hmm. just kind of making fun of these things that parents do that are really annoying i think most people would agree with um and so they'll kind of and it may not be a parent that. they've experienced they literally could have you know a side talent of being a comedian and so as long as you're not specifically identifying someone please let it not be a parent conference you participated in yesterday right. and posted <laughs> about it today <laughs> yeah. That would be upset you know, if I like saw that the next right. day. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's interesting to see how it breaks down. You were talking about, um, you know, being an ambassador. I used to deal with the same stuff when I had um, a team of, of news reporters and on-air talent working with me, and they're always under a microscope of what they say. Right. And one way I kind of would try to coach them, I would say, if – if you're not willing to get up in front of a group of people, like say if you were speaking at the local Rotary Club and say this stuff, then mm-hmm. you probably don't need to put it on social media. Like, so assume that your social media accounts like giving a speech and, and treat it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, some would be like, well, I'd say that in front of a Rotary Club, but you know, so you have to be careful, but it just kind of brings it back into perspective for some folks. I think sometimes people, you know, they, they have that urge to, to get that viral video um, that sometimes they might cross a line uh, in the world of social media. I agree. I agree. And there is a book and, and it's lost. I've, I've, I've lost my thought on which book it is, but I remember studying it um, for a leadership retreat. And one of the things that it talked about was the I complex. How many likes can I get? Mm-hmm. How much star power can I get? What do people think about what I'm doing? 
right. <laughs> it's a little neurotic, you know, it can become that way. And so you have to wonder if that's what it's tied to, or if they really are just excited to share something great. Um, and I have to be honest with you, even from the administrative perspective, there are times that I'll sit back and reflect on a conversation and it could be with a teacher, an employee, a parent, a community member, or even a student go, I cannot believe that that happened today, or I can't believe they said that to me. I probably could have an entire um, season, (laughs) if you will, um, of TikToks, just sharing things that I've experienced or things that have been said to me. But guess what? It's not appropriate. Yeah. And I'm afraid that the other reason we see just educators and really lots of occupations you could apply this to, they they go for that, we'll just call it social media famous um, venture, is because it comes back to pay. Like they know that if, if they can somehow you know, get a big enough following, they can leverage mm-hmm. this into selling merchandise, selling a book, um, you know, just pre-rolls for and videos. That's, that's true, but let's not do it at the stake of your organization or your school right. community. Yeah. And I remember the book that I read, it's um, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. Yes. And it, there's really, there's a chapter in there that just talks about, you know, we, we have to sacrifice that and remember that it's always, always we. And how is what I'm doing and what I'm saying impacting you know, the entire organization. TikTok is something that, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm staying away from it, but I, I do find it crossing over into the other social people are texting me TikTok videos and maybe I'm it's going to go Twitter. come and go like MySpace did. <laughs> yeah. Right. I wonder what Tom's up to. I hope that guy's rich. You remember Tom from MySpace? Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, uh, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us the lowdown on inquiry-based learning. Trevor McKenzie is the author of Dive Into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset. Trevor, welcome to Class Dismissed. Nick, thanks so much. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Great to connect and uh, looking forward to this. We're excited to connect too. But first, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to do something that may or may not be hard. I guess it depends on how much you, you're prepared on this stuff. But imagine you and I are on an elevator together and we're getting off of different floors. And I say, Trevor, what's inquiry-based learning? How do you quickly get that point across. Yeah, I love it. Uh, well, that's a challenge because, you know, I spent days, sometimes weeks work with teachers around the world and deepening understanding of inquiry. But uh, in a nutshell, I would say getting our students to have more of an active role in the classroom, uh, exploring their questions and their curiosities as entry points into our curriculum, and definitely playing with the role of the teacher in the classroom. And sometimes that teacher is at the front of the room and uh, leading the way, so to speak. And sometimes the teacher is that guide on the ride, you know, someone who's facilitating and supporting learners. And, uh, you know, the role of questions, I think, is pivotal in the inquiry classroom. And then I have to stop because I've exited the elevator and you're moving up and I'm gone. So, uh, but again, you know, Nick, it's something that's an ongoing piece of my work is helping teachers around the world uh, with implementation of inquiry, if you will. Well, and now, and now we can actually dive into it. And I'm just going to refer to it as IBL probably for the rest of the uh, the, the show. But how how is this different from, say, personalized learning? We've done episodes on that. They sound kind of similar, but not the same, I guess. Yeah, you know, I think inquiry as an umbrella, you know, there are many frameworks and protocols and, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to say catchphrases, but there's a lot of trendy jargon happening around, you know, the global educational discourse right now, Proje- project-based learning, problem-based learning, personalized learning. I think inquiry is the overarching umbrella. And Underneath that umbrella, what we're trying to do is really give our experience in our classrooms over to the students so they can take ownership over different components of their learning. So whether it's, you know, designing a genuine, authentic task 
to exploring a curiosity or a question that's theirs. Uh, you know, I think all those frameworks underneath the umbrella of inquiry really shift the ownership over to the students and that gradual relief uh, release of responsibility from the teacher to the student, I think is a really key aspect that inquiry uh, uh, pushes forward. Okay. So if I'm hearing you right, you, you, you want to give ownership to the students. I mean, does that mean you're, you're asking them, all right, well, what do we learn about today? Like, how does that look? Yeah, it looks like different things uh, throughout the year. You know, I, I find time and time again, students at the beginning of the year, they, they, they tend to be more cautious and more anxious around taking ownership over the over their learning. And, you know, we, we can't fault them for that. I think our educational systems have been really, you know, pushing a, a complacent model for years and years and years. And then they walk into an inquiry space and they're asked to, hey, well, what are you passionate about? Or what are you curious about? So earlier on in the year, it really is modeling what inquiry can look like through a teacher-directed inquiry. You know, I always start my unit design with a big, overarching, ungoogleable question, if you will, and I make that Google or ungoogleable question front and center in my classroom, right? So we can all see it, and I try to have it be really enticing. You know, I want to pull my my students into our curriculum through that overarching question. And then I'm really big on provocations, Nick. Provocations are those really exciting entry points into our curriculum. I show a lot of video that is tied to our curriculum, uh, but really trying to spark interest and curiosity within my students and then kind of figure out what questions they have around the concepts of which we're going to study. So really being a responsive educator in terms of my unit planning rather than planning out unit after unit after unit before I get to know my students and the questions they have about our curriculum. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and so I know you like to to break it down to almost like four categories when you're when you're teaching other teachers how to pull this off in their class. And and I guess you decided to start doing this because you would probably give speeches and and everyone would want to just like jump into the deep end of the pool to, to use your scenario. And you're, you're kind of like, no, we need to do this more gradually. We need to do this as if we are a swim coach, right? Yeah. You know, a, a key piece of my work is, is a framework that students and teachers can experience inquiry through. And really, if you can imagine that swimming pool, you know, there's a shallower end where the teacher is definitely taking on more of a role in terms of planning an inquiry unit. You know, the questions that we ask, the provocations that are brought in, the resources that students are going to grapple with and unpack, that's all decided uh, through the lens of the teacher. And that's my role is really modeling what a strong inquiry can look like. And then four units of studies, that's what we call a structured inquiry. You know, another unit of study would be a controlled inquiry. Then we transition into guided inquiry and finally free inquiry. And free inquiry is that deep end of the inquiry pool where students are choosing the topic. They're crafting their own question that they're going to explore and try to answer. You know, I'm helping them find resources that they're going to use to answer that big question that they've asked. And then they have agency over how they want to demonstrate their learning. You know, what's the best vehicle to share and communicate everything that they've learned through the process of that free inquiry? So, you know, those two different types of inquiry from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. If listeners can imagine this gradual shift in responsibility over learning from the teacher to the students, so our students are less anxious, and then they're gaining the skills and understandings required to be successful in taking on more agency over learning. Those four types of inquiry are four units of study in my classroom across the whole year from September until June. Uh, and, you know, at times I, I settle into a certain type longer because my students require more time, not just to explore a question, but more specifically to really gain and sharpen those tools and those skills that inquirers need.
Uh, and then, you know, of course, we, we culminate our year in that free inquiry, the deep end of the pool. In my classroom, that tends to look like a gala or some kind of a public display of understanding, if you will, where we try to take our learning beyond the four walls of our classroom and invite people from the community in or people from other classrooms in. Because inevitably, the questions and the topics these students are exploring in free inquiry they're super interesting, right? And we want to share that learning because learning shouldn't be confined just to a single course or, you know, something that can be dumped into a recycling bin at the end of the year. It should be meaningful for all those involved. So really trying to take it to, you know, towards the end of the year to a gala space. I think students really enjoy sharing their free inquiry project to a public audience. Yeah, You offer up this really cool graphic that basically draws out what you were, were just saying. And, and I'll either link to it or if you'll let me share it um, when we post this podcast in the notes. But you you have like the structured um, inquiry area, and it's it's kids in a pool with a coach, and they're like on the wall, and and they're they're just getting started, they're just getting used to the pool. And as you work along, next you hand them the the little paddle boards that they may swim with, or the little wakeboards, and then they're starting to do freestyle on their own. And then it's just kind of like they're in the deep end, and they're some are jumping off the diving board and so forth. So I don't know if that it's, it's difficult sometimes to draw a picture and in a podcast, but hopefully that kind of helps our listeners a little bit. Um, you did a great job there, Nick. Well done. And I, and I strongly recommend people, you know, download and print off the graphic. You know, it's something I, le- I use in my classroom all the time. Uh, it's a teaching resource essentially for my students so they can understand where their role is going to shift throughout the year uh, and how my role is also going to shift to better support them taking ownership over their learning. So yeah, by all means, Nick, please link it to the podcast and, and listeners, please print it off and use it with your students. And, and so that's good to know that you actually share it with the students. So if somebody's still not keeping up with us, like, can you give me a real life example of like the first step, structured inquiry and your, you, what are you doing like in terms of, um, I guess you're an English teacher at, at heart, right? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a trained English teacher, but you know, my work really transcends uh, a specific subject area. You know, I think teachers from kindergarten all the way up to higher ed can adopt inquiry as their own. You know, on day one, uh, you know, it's all about relationships, Nick. As we know in education, we have to build strong relationships with our students. And that's just also true in an inquiry classroom. You know, getting to know our students both in terms of their strengths and their challenges, but also their interests and their curiosities, so I could leverage those. It, towards the deeper end of the pool. You know, I, I don't do a single assignment for the first couple of weeks. Uh, my students are writing and they're talking, but nothing is taken in for marks because I really want to create a strong relationship with all my kids. So, you know, on day one, I'm doing all those goofy name games. I'm meeting my kids at the front door and we're doing kind of little checks and little conversations so I can get to know them better. Uh, and as soon as I feel like that relationship is strong and I've gotten to know my students pretty darn well, uh, I roll out that structured inquiry. And that is, you know, I begin with that overarching, ungoogleable question. You know, one that we're chewing on right away this year will be, who are you and what shapes your identity? Uh, and that's a big question for any young person to explore. Uh, beautiful question in the English classroom, because as we read different pieces, whether it's stories or poems or watch documentaries or read novels, you know, identity is a key characteristic across literature. And having my students not just understand identity through literature, but create a deeper understanding of themselves and what their values and their beliefs are and their goals. That's kind of the, the balance I'm, I'm trying to achieve in this structured inquiry. Uh, you know, both give them an active role in exploring themselves through the lens of the literature that we're reading. Uh, I'll roll out a really awesome provocation that I've designed that looks at identity across 
different scopes in society. You know, we'll look at branding and pop culture and media and its impact on identity. We'll look at gender and identity, which is really, really an important topic for young students to grapple with and kind of sharpen a conversation around. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll look at politics, politics and identity and the shape of values that are in our political realm. And it all comes back to uh, eventually them understanding themselves better as students and as learners and as citizens in our world, right? So uh, starting learning with a question, I think it's the greatest shift teachers and listeners can make in, in, in with regards to unit design. You know, what is that overarching question that is tied to a concept that's in our curriculum or a topic in our curriculum and drafting that overarching question and making it really visible in your classroom. So everything you're doing and talking about and reading is tied to that overarching question. And essentially, that's our goal is to answer that question, isn't it? By the end of our unit, students should be able to talk to and write to uh, the answer to that question, if you will, Nick. And do you think the students are keeping up um, as you go along? Like, do they do they see this almost as a teacher would see this? A, a key hallmark of an inquiry classroom is just being really transparent and intentional with all aspects of learning in the classroom. There's no, you know, hidden agenda here. There's no you know, the students don't know where we're going, the frameworks and the structures that we, we adopt in an inquiry classroom, not just allow students to have a clear understanding of where we're going and that active role that we're seeking out. But I mean, we're constantly talking, right? The inquiry classroom, I, I think is pretty lively, pretty boisterous. And we're always talking. And in that talking, I'm getting a really clear understanding of both where my students are currently and then where we need to go next. Where do I need to take the next in terms of my direct instruction and any resources that I could bring in to deepen their understanding of that question? So I would say students have a really clear understanding of where we're headed. And I think they feel really confident in the sense that they see that swimming pool graphic and they know that we're starting in the shallow end and they know that slowly throughout the year, they're going to take on more agency and more of an active role and that we won't go further in that swimming pool until they're ready. And that gives them a lot of confidence, that trust and that faith that they have seeing that swimming pool graphic. As you travel, do you find that teachers are aware and already practicing IBL or is this something that you're like walking in and blowing their mind and, and then they're attacking it? Well, I see both, Nick. Uh, but to be honest, I'm typically invited into spaces to support teachers and they've already committed themselves to this journey. And, and what they need help with isn't, you know, understanding why they want to do IBL, but it's the how, it's the implementation piece. And so very rarely do I walk into a space where I feel like I have to do any convincing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's, it's in a space where teachers have committed themselves and it's getting down into the nitty gritty of how to roll out an inquiry unit. It's kind of what we're talking about here, Nick, and what those steps look like. And what does a year look like in inquiry and what challenges or barriers to inquire have I witnessed in my own classroom and in my own visits to schools so I could try my best to support those teachers who I'm supporting uh, at the schools that I visit. So, you know, inquiry, I think, is uh, it's, it's on the tip of the global conversation right now uh, in education. And I think it's because schools and organizations are looking to move away from an over-standardized curriculum and assessment model and to that personalized model that you referred to at the outset of our podcast here. And what does that more personalized space look like? Uh, and what are the frameworks where we can adopt more agency for our students in the classroom? So I don't want to say it's trendy. You know, inquiry has been around for a very long time. It's nothing new, but I think it's really relevant right now because of that 
that shift in education that we're seeing around the world. Uh, so talking about IBL and personalized learning in general, to, to a person who's very structured and organized, it can probably be really intimidating. Like, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have this student doing this and this student doing that. Like, how do you convince the, the structured and organized person that this might be a good way to go? Yeah, you know, I try to break down some inquiry myths, if you will, Nick, you know, I think one inquiry myth is that explicit instruction is bad. And that, you know, the teacher at the front of the room standing at a lecture stand, that doesn't happen in an inquiry space. And that's just not the case. We've seen the research tell us that when a teacher does some explicit instruction, especially in a response to a student's curiosity, or to an interest, or to a need that the students have, inquiry is much more successful. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think some teachers have a tough time letting go of that, that sense of control in an inquiry classroom. But teachers need to understand that inquiry does have explicit instruction. And uh, it does have many of the components that we've always done in a traditional setting, they transfer over to an inquiry classroom. And I think breaking down some of those myths and really deepening an understanding of what inquiry is, how it feels, uh, how you plan an inquiry allows, you know, a teacher who likes control to see themselves in inquiry because an inquiry isn't a loss of control. It isn't, you know, messy and uncertain. A teacher just shifts their role from, again, that teacher directed always at the focal point of the classroom to slowly removing some of those restraints over learning to empower our students once they have the skills and understandings necessary to take on more agency over their learning. Does that make sense to you, Nick? Yes, absolutely. And and you have two books, Dive Into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset. You know, how do you recommend people dive in with your book? Should they start with the first one and then move on to the second? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first one I wrote uh, with all educators in mind, and then in my work visiting schools around the world, I was getting these really specific questions from primary teachers, you know, that K to five lens. And so inquiry mindset really has been written for uh, early years educators from K to grade five, uh, whereas dive into inquiry, it transcends kind of K to higher ed. But what I've begun to notice is it's more widely well-received middle school, high school. So we kind of have two books depending on your grade level. If you teach middle school, high school, I would say dive into inquiries for you. And if you teach the younger years, inquiry mindsets for you. And what we're doing there is the frameworks and the structures and the process, it's the same in either book, but the examples that we give and how we roll this out with the younger years as compared to our older students, that's more specific in terms of the resource that we've created for you. All right, Trevor McKenzie, if someone wants to keep up with you, do you like to interact? Are you on like social media? Do you like Twitter? Do you have a place you like to hang out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, find me, uh, my online space is trevormckenzie.com. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned that because there are a bunch of free resources, whether it's webinars or, you know, those tangible resources that you can bring in your classroom to support inquiry. Uh, I'm really active on, on Twitter. It's at Trev underscore McKenzie. And then I'm on Instagram at TNT McKenzie. So those are kind of my three spaces where I love to interact with teachers. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to enlighten myself and our listeners about IBL. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I suppose I am. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, my goodness. It's got to be art. I think all students need to be creative. And uh, yeah, art teachers are just amazing. So I'd say uh, an art class would be the one class I'd want all students to participate in. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Empathy. Absolutely. Empathy needs to be a learning objective. And uh, that needs to be front and center in some of our unit design. Empathy is it. What does every child deserve? 
every child deserves to be seen. I think teachers, uh, you know, I beg you to see your students, know their names and uh, build that relationship. And from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave our days with us, they need to be seen. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Oh, I think it's to let go of the things that we've done in the past to adopt the things that are new or uncertain for us and to be comfortable in that mess of uncertainty and uh, recognize that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but that we need to uh, make that shift and, and be comfortable in that uncertainty. What's the best gift to give an educator? Ooh, that's a tough one. Ooh, I'd like to say a bottle of wine, but I guess I should go with a book since I am an author. I think, uh, you know, those tangible books that allow us to implement a big idea, but in a really uh, actionable way, I think, uh, you know, a resource is, is really critical and important. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, my goodness. My high school basketball coach, Mickey Welder. Uh, from long rides at the front of the bus talking about life to uh, just teaching me strong work ethic, you know, what good communication and collaboration and team skills looks like. I think my time as a basketball coach under Mickey Welder taught me a lot about the teacher I want to be and, and the father I am. Well, and that's interesting. You, it had nothing to do with curriculum. It was like you said, he got to know you, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, you know, all teachers should coach at some point in their careers because I think it really, again, it opens up our eyes to students in a different light. But uh, it, it allows us to take on mentorship, mentorship if you will, in, in a different way as well. So very thankful for those teachers who give of themselves outside of the classroom as well as inside of the classroom, Nick. And last question. It's an easy one. Pen or pencil? Oh, pencil. All right. Trevor McKenzie, <laughs> again, we appreciate you taking the time to to bring us up to speed on IBL and uh, best of luck to you with uh, all your books and all your work. Nick, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.